Well, uh, Mark's already mentioned that we're doing this 31-week series called The Story. And, you know, this week actually coming is going to be about the halfway point. Yeah. It's going quick, hey. Halfway. It's been really good. I hope you've enjoyed it. The story is this, uh, like an abridged version of the Bible. And it started in Genesis. And it's going to go all the way through to Revelation. And it's just to help us track the, the wider story arc of the Bible. And we've been reading one chapter per week. As a church, I hope you've been keeping up. Um, it's just one chapter. You know, it's like 15 minutes a week. I tried to make it as easy as possible. And it's taken us from creation, including the fall of, of humanity. You know, this, this moment when uh, sin, the tragedy of sin, entered this world. And, and it explains so much of what we're going through, you know, even this week. It, it helps us to understand why there's so much pain and, and suffering. But the story of the Bible is God's redemption plan. And, and we're part of that today. It continues today. We go back in time and God chose Abraham and Sarah to start a new nation. And, and he would enter into a covenant with them and... and they would be his people and he would reveal himself to the world through them. They would be the nation to bless all nations. He had to rescue them from slavery in Egypt and then he chose to set them apart and give them their own land where they would dwell and he would, he would be with them. At Mount Sinai, he didn't just give Ten Commandments. This is something that I really tried to grasp a hold of as we've read this. It wasn't just a list of rules. It was a, a picture of a beautiful vision for God's people that would reflect his purpose for us and his original intent in creation. And we've since been tracking this new nation in covenant with God and learning the lessons and principles and, and kind of taking, them, taking those principles out and applying to them to us today in our context Although these people in covenant with God had some setbacks, God's faithfulness and the faith of some great leaders that he, he brought up, this great, through that, this great vision began to come to fruition in many ways. Eventually, they established this new kingdom that aligned with God. King David was probably the high point, we would say, although, he, you know, as we also learned, he had his own struggles. But he was a person after God's own heart. That, that's the key to being a people of God, a heart chasing after God's, submitted to his way as being the best way for us. But over time, that beautiful vision God has for his people, it kind of leaks. Instead of moving forward deeper and deeper into God's vision through all its ups and downs, the trend line kind of starts to, you know, it, it's like this right up and down as we move closer to God and we have setbacks. And it kind of switches and starts to, the trend line starts to head south. It's going down. The kings and rulers who don't follow God's ways become more and more prevalent. The seasons of living faithfully in God's covenant become less and less. Israel's culture slowly takes on more and more of the surrounding culture. You know, greed and idolatry creeps in. And as we've been saying, what, what one generation kind of tolerates in these areas another generation embraces. And as we learned last week, the nation eventually splits in two 
Mark was telling us about this, and the bulk of the tribes, they end up, they're still called Israel in the north, and then you've got Judah in the south, that includes Benjamin as well. They're split because they can't keep their unity together because of these reasons. And what becomes clear, and history is filled with examples like this, the further from God's rescue, you know, the further from our encounter with him, the more we tend to be complacent, the more we start to drift from God's vision for us. And it's true of us too. They drifted from the covenant. They drifted from his commands. They, they drifted from his authority. They, they drifted from that relationship. Their hearts moved away from God's heart. Instead of pursuing God's heart, it started to go their own way. Now, God doesn't drift, by the way. His covenant and his promises, his love for us is constant and real. It's us. We tend to do it. And in all of his patience and love and grace, he starts to gently send the reminders and he sends the warnings. And over time, they get louder and louder and then enter the prophets. When the prophets show up, you know you're in trouble, right? (laughs) So we had four prophets in our reading this week that I could see anyway, Elijah, Elisha, Amos, and Hosea. And they all have their own great story, but there's that big dramatic moment in Elijah's um, prophetic mission or ministry that we're going to read today. People tend to not like prophets. And and I don't mean the fake ones that have their own agendas, you know, they're looking for a platform somewhere, or the ones that just tell you what you want to hear. I'm not talking about that, because generally a prophet is mostly concerned with the alignment of your heart with God's heart, and it's kind of revealed through our actions, and so prophets kind of point that out. They have a tendency to do that. His or her job is to cut to the chase about what's going on here. (laughs) Remember what Nathan did for David? He didn't, you know, sugarcoat it. For Israel and for Judah, because they were God's people, they would, these, this, these group of men and sometimes women would often prophesy about the collective heart of the nation. You know, Nathan got to David, but often their prophecy was about God's people as a whole. That's what these four prophets had to do. And this week, if, again, I hope you've been reading along, we read about Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They ruled Israel, and they really, they'd completely abandoned their side of the covenant with God. Jezebel had just, they already had infiltration of the culture of of idolatry and stuff like that, but she really ramped it up. Idol worship and and all those sorts of things were going on. All those those influences from what was around them. There There was more greed, there was more injustice. The king tended to rule with Fear and control, evil increased, and, and Ahab just went along with, with it all. And now Israel's culture didn't look any different to the cultures around them. It was a mess. They were meant to be the nation that would reveal God to the world through how they lived. That beautiful vision for them, it's, it's kind of feeling lost now. We're approaching the lowest point in, in Israel's Old Testament history. Elijah, the prophet, is trying to sound the alarm. You know, a lot of the prophets had actually been taken out. 
So God arranges for Elijah to meet Ahab through a palace administrator named Obadiah, who was still faithful to God, and he proposes what can only be described <clears throat> as a showdown. Right? So here it is in 1 Kings 18, and we're going to start at verse 16, after I have a little drink. Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, troublemaker of Israel? Isn't that a nice way to, to be greeted? Well, Elijah responds, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your family's family have, your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, some Baals are the, the gods of other nations, false gods. Now, summon the people from all over Israel and meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And we'll just stop there for a second. Because that spoke to the condition of the heart of the nation. So Ahab agrees. Just to cut this long story shorter, Ahab agrees and Elijah sets up this showdown. He proposes that the hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Baal set up a sacrifice, as will he. And they'll call on whichever God is real, and the one that responds with fire, that will be God. So the hundreds of prophets of Baal do this, and for hours they're dancing around, and they're crying out, and in fact they even do strange things like cut themselves, and nothing happens. And then we pick it up in verse 30. Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. When the stones he built, with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two says of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and he laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Then do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down the, around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. See what he's, what he's on about? Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. It was obviously a big demonstration of God's power. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Repeat it after me. The Lord, he is God. God's power always wins. And he uses this demonstration of power to get their attention. Because he's trying to warn them. 
But if you know the story, this amazing demonstration only kind of slightly delays this continual slide away from God. The further we get from our moment of salvation or our encounter with God, the, the greater that danger of complacency and drifting. That's why you've heard both Pastor Adam and Pastor Mark make that point about remembering. Remember what God has done for you. That's exactly why he asked the Israelites, he said, you should have regular festivals and monuments to remember and celebrate and have thanksgiving. It's the same reason we're here this morning, to be honest, that we gather every week. It's the same reason we celebrate Christmas and Easter. It's the reason why we have communion Every month, we stop, we remember what Christ has done. Because we have a tendency to drift. God's asked us to do these things because he knows how quickly our hearts can turn. And those constant times of stopping and remembering and celebrating, when we, when we grow together, when we fellowship together, when we, you know, we stretch each other and we give encouragement, we all need them really badly. To stay close to him, to God. When we don't do that, the outside culture creeps in, the idols creep in. We don't even notice it at first. Our love for God wanes. and It kind of starts to be revealed in, in the things we do and say. Now, I've talked about all these things before, those personal idols, the personal drifting. And so since Israel was warned, they were kind of warned as this collective group by the prophets, I wondered... You know, what are the idols of the church that we're warned of today, collectively, together, as followers of God? Remember, prophets are pointing to, the, to, to a heart problem. So what are the temptations of the church? Have you ever thought about that? See, we can be tempted to read the story of Israel and just apply it. Maybe we think, oh, this is a message for our nation. It's for Australia. And perhaps there's some parallels, but really I think we have to apply these lessons to the church, to God's people. Israel were God's people that would bless all nations. Today, that's the church. We are supposed to be the people that bless our nation and, put, and reveal God to others. The idols of the church, I just I thought of at least three. The first one is power, status, and control. I grouped them together because I thought it would take too long to do them individually. But... Leaders who want status or churches who want status and control over others can be an idol. I've seen it happen too much. And, you know, I, I get kind of over-reading about toxic church leaders. I don't know about you guys. I'm over-reading about the ones that are always looking for power and status. I'm over the ones that take advantage of people. I'm over the ones that are too worried about their image. I'm over the ones that where pride and arrogance seem to, to go with it. And I think a lot, of, a lot of these leaders start off well, but humility just, I don't know, it, it kind of gets hijacked by status, doesn't it? And the power becomes too much for some, and the inner need to be honoured ahead of others kind of takes over. Churches who want to be known just for size and power and influence instead of wanting to promote the good news of Jesus, can be, it's, it's just a little bit too common. Image and status has become an idol for too, many, for too many churches and too many church leaders. And we have to be vigilant on this one. So I pray, Lord, don't ever let us 
go down that idle pathway. Keep us humble, God. Everyone with me so far? The second one is comfort and self-interest. This one can sneak up on us. Slowly, bit by bit, we start to focus too much on what makes us feel comfortable and fills our own personal needs and desires, and we forget that the gospel calls us to focus on the lost and and the orphan and the widow and the broken marriages and the addicted and the unemployed and, and people's struggling with sexuality or gender or maybe not even struggling with it it's and the buddhist or the hindu and the muslim and the refugee and the kids on that are on the spectrum and the depressed and the anxious and the lonely all those needs are before us but there's an idol of comfort and self-interest that we start to neglect those things There's another prophet, his name was Micah, and he said in chapter 6 of his book, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? You ever asked that question? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Wow, that packages it up really well. Now, obviously, I think having uh, appropriate facilities are important, But if they're just for our comfort or ego or status, then we're in danger of them becoming an idol. What's important to God is to act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And if we invest everything into nice things just for our comfort rather than to meet the mission around us that God says is the most important thing, we miss it. We start to become like the Israelites did. Things infiltrate. Speaking of that... Number three is this idol can be cultural acceptance. And here we go on this point. (laughs) There's an understandable human desire to be liked. (laughs) I I have that, which is fine. But as the church, it has the potential to become an idol as well. Because the culture can sometimes isolate us or look down on us or pressure us in certain ways because we won't accept all that our culture demands of us. No one likes to be unpopular. We like to be liked. And let's be honest, the church really likes to have a seat at the cultural table. Life might be easier if it's like that. So we give the culture something they want. We change our views or our doctrine or our ways to keep that demanding culture around us happy. Hopefully, they'll like us now. Maybe they won't think we're part of that weird fundamentalist Christian mob anymore. We won't have to feel that pressure or ridicule anymore. We'll just conform a little bit and they'll like us. So the temptation comes. We'll just twist something or reinterpret something here just enough to change God's beautiful vision. Humanity. And the first demand is almost always in the area of sexuality. If I didn't say that clearly, let me just say that again. The first demand is almost always connected to sexuality. Almost every part of God's plan and ethic around sex has been attacked, but do you know what? It's always been that way. All the way through history. Today is no different. Now, I know anything around this topic can be sensitive and even divisive. 
whole denominations are being ripped in two at the moment. In this country, in the USA, in the UK, in New Zealand. How we handle how we handle this as a church is really important because holding firmly to God's plan for us is really important because we believe God's way articulated through his word actually is the best and most loving way for all people. But how do we go about teaching that message? Or how we go about teaching that message, I should say, is equally important. How we, how we embrace all people is equally important. I think Jesus is clear that as his followers embracing all people is at the heart of the gospel. And our words and actions must convey that message all the time. It has to be real. Not everyone will accept that we can hold those two things together, unconditional love and living within God's plan for our sexuality. But I believe God's word to be true and to be good for all people. His word says that sexual intimacy is designed to be exclusively for the marriage relationship. Start with that one. The culture doesn't agree. And that marriage is for a man and a woman. We, you know, we have to acknowledge, church, that same-sex attraction is obviously very real for people. And if that's you here today, we love you equally. Please know without a doubt that you are embraced and very welcome on the same level as every single other person. And many of us may never fully understand the struggles that you may have been going through or the way that perhaps you've been made to feel. But I would also point you to Jesus and the resurrected life he wants for you. Jesus said this in Matthew 16. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. And if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? And this command is for everybody. This lesson is for everyone. There's, there's no scale of whose sin is worse than others. We all take up a cross. But there may be a cross to bear that others don't have to bear. I hope and pray for us to be a, a community for everyone as we understand that sometimes this cross to bear is different to our own. We need to know that. Which is why grace should abound in God's community, in the church community. Following Jesus does mean sacrifice, and I get it, maybe for some of us that sacrifice, it seems bigger than others. But Jesus promises rest in that cross-bearing life that we walk with him. In fact, he says his burden is not heavy. And what I think he means is that he wants us to discover when we put the old ways to death, the new life with him is, is freedom. That, that cross that we take up to follow him is ultimately life-giving. It becomes more like a feather on our backs than the burden and fear that we once carried when we weren't with him. Back to my main point. 
The idol of the church can be to want to dial down the pressure and get us that coveted seat at the cultural table and maybe some grant money to go with it, right? So we give the culture a little bit of what they want. But here's the thing, even if we do that, it won't be enough. The culture will continue to come back for more and more and more and the demands won't end until the light is gone and the message is bland. The Israelites went down this path. They wanted a seat at the cultural table with the nations around them. It was easier to be like them rather than being set apart and showing them a new way, a better way. Even if it's hard, the way of salt and light. So, so what is the way of the church? Paul says in 2 Timothy, For God saved us and called us to, to live a holy life. That's it. God's called us to live a holy life together, collectively. The way is holiness, being set apart. Being set apart for God as an example. And by the way, the example is Jesus. The example Jesus gives us is the example for us. He wasn't greedy. He was generous. He wasn't prideful. He was humble. He, he didn't get revenge against those who came against him. He actually forgave, literally, while hanging on a cross. He didn't lord his authority over people. Jesus watched, washed his disciples' feet. He didn't condemn people. He rescued them from the condemners. He didn't turn away from those caught up in in their sin, you know, whether it was prostitution or sexual sin or whatever it was, instead he had compassion for them and he showed them a way out as their friend. He exemplified the fruit of the Spirit. Through Jesus, people experienced love. They, they actually experienced it. What is real love? What is kindness? What is patience? What is gentleness? Jesus showed it to people. They experienced it and therefore they should experience it from us. He broke cultural boundaries he elevated women. He broke through ethnic divides. In a time when women were sometimes treated like, um, like property and, and there was like racism abounds. And I know those things still happen today, but Jesus set the example for us. Boy, oh boy, if those things are in the church, forget the other things I was just talking about. That has to end. It shouldn't be there. He was, he was tempted, but he resisted temptation he was um, free of sin. He put his father ahead of everything and lived to bring him glory. He did everything his father told him to do. He was completely obedient. I'm talking about what a um, set-apart holy group looks like in Jesus' example, okay, in case I've lost you. He even went to the cross when he could have called thousands of angels to rescue him there because his father said so. I've barely scratched the surface. Jesus is the example for the church. We're called to be holy, to set ourselves apart, to sacrificially be like him. And being a set apart is far deeper than just holding on to God's sexual ethic. That's one thing, but it goes way deeper than that. That is the topic at the moment, but it also means holding on to his commands to love people. In fact, he says, you've got to love your enemies. You've... You've got to pray for those who persecute you. That is so hard for us, isn't it? But that's, that's the standard for us. To be generous, to love justice, and show mercy. Being set apart means putting others ahead of me. It means a loving community filled with compassionate people 
you know, who love Jesus with all their heart and love others as much as they love themselves. Being set apart means I'm not going to go after all the comforts and neglect others. Being set apart means I'm going to be slow to anger. It means I don't gossip. It means I don't tear people down. It means I'm going to love my wife like Christ loves the church. I'm going to die for her. It means my kids and my marriage, they're going to come before even my work, even my business, even my ministry. Being set apart means I'll do what it takes to break the power of those addictions in my life. Being set apart means I'm going to be, I'm going to be the quickest person you know to forgive. I'm not going to get revenge. I don't allow a bit of root to form. Being set apart means I, I'm not about undermining other people, even if they have done the wrong thing by me. Being set apart means I'm going to go where God says I have to go. I, I kind of hate saying that one out loud. <laughs> and I've got to do what God says to do. Being set apart means I'm going to surrender those desires I have that don't align with God's desires for me. Being set apart means I'm living a life that's just repentance. In other words, I'm changing who I am constantly to who God wants me to be. My heart is going after God's sanctification, holiness, transformation. That's set apart people. Being set apart means the Holy Spirit actually has free reign in me. Not just the bits that I want him to work in. To convict me when I'm wrong. To tell me when to go and when to stop and to purify this this heart of mine. Being set apart means I'm going to trust God completely. It's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to trust him. I hope more and more that church we can be that set-apart community, a community that holds true to all of God's transformative vision for us, even the bits that our culture says they don't like. As when we get pushed back, we respond in love to those who push back against us. And I note that Jesus himself encountered people that walked away. His call to surrender and repent was just too much for some. By the way, let me just pause here and just... Highlight, if we're feeling pushed back from culture, it doesn't automatically mean we're right, by the way. Because, you know, you can be arrogant and obnoxious and mean and even hateful and get pushed back and then say, oh, yeah, well, Jesus said that would happen to me. That doesn't mean that it's, it's right what's going on. We've got to be careful with that one. But I do think that God is calling us back to holiness. And my hope today is that as we unite together to commit wholeheartedly to Jesus you know, that we would trust him with our future, being set apart for him, being holy. I hope you're hearing the humble side of this and not a prideful side of this. I'm not talking about separating ourselves out of the world. Jesus did not do that. That's not what I'm saying. We have a mission in our world, and it starts in our, in our own communities, in our own families, in our own friendship groups. I'm talking about not being of the world. Whatever pressure or temptation comes your way. It kind of feels quiet in here today. Last week, Esther sang a song. 
And I can't stop thinking of the words. Are you here today, Esther? You are. It was this beautiful call to holiness. It was a, a prayer and a declaration at the same time. And I, I went into Mark's office on Tuesday and I, I, I said, is this a new song we're doing? He said, it was actually just a one-off time of ministry. And I said, I've got to sing it again. I've got to sing it again this week as a church. And Mark was really happily ready to do that. Yeah, you can come up, team. Because we're going to sing this song together. It's like a joint declaration of our commitment to be God's holy people. But also as a prayer together that God would do that work in us. Don't worry about other people so much right now. This, this was what the chorus said. It just says, we are your people. You are our God. We are your temple. And then there's this prayer, this request. Make us holy like you are. I wonder whether we could sing that together today. Is there, who's with me? Let's stand up.